0: Good morning, I am aware that your bulletin and schedule said that there would be a guest speaker this morning, that guest speaker is me, surprise, it's actually it says guest speaker, no, uh, just kidding. Um, so. It is me. We were going to have a guest speaker, but for various reasons that didn't pan out, you will have an extra time to have a guest speaker while I'm on the mainland for three weeks in July to August. So uh, there will be many opportunities to hear other brothers proclaim the gospel faithfully. Today, today we will be looking, uh, taking a special look at motherhood. And uh, The title of the sermon is Motherhood That Magnifies. Motherhood that magnifies. Now, generally, I do not break from the sermon series to give a special Mother's Day sermon. That is not the normative thing to do, but given as I had a break in the schedule already, what more of an appropriate time to break from the sermon of First John, our series through that. And additionally, if our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, while he was doing His crosswork, hanging on a cross, could take a moment to look at his mom and take care of her before he left, then what an appropriate way to remember our Savior and the pattern he set for us than to take a special Sunday to just talk about the mothers, or soon-to-be mothers, in our congregation. So that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. Some think Mother's Day is a bad idea. Did you know that? Some think Mother's Day is a bad idea. Actually, the founder, the person who conceived the idea of Mother's Day, Anna Jarvis, who uh, around 1905 had the idea for Mother's Day. She died, regretted ever having ever proposed it in the first place because of what it would become, because of the commercialism that would attend it, the sentimentality that would attend it and in some ways undercut the true desire to honor mothers. And so Anna Jarvis died regretting it was a bad idea. More prominently, Southern Baptist leader Albert Moeller had this to say, and I quote, Mother's Day is a bad idea because it subverts the reality of faithful mothering and robs faithful mothers of their true glory. Mothers, deserving of honor, are handed cards and taken to lunch when songs of praise should instead be offered to the glory of God. Undeserving mothers who abdicate their true responsibility are honored just because they are mothers. And children, young and old, who ignore and dishonor their mothers by word and by life throughout the year, assuage their guilt by making a big deal of Mother's Day. End quote. Whew. But, rest assured, he'll go on throughout the rest of the article to say how they will still participate in the honoring of mothers on Mother's Day. But he's noting the dangers of, their, of Mother's Day. And there are true dangers, aren't there? There are true dangers. And so, what we won't do today is we will not idolize mothers. We will not marginalize mothers. What we want to do is magnify the purpose of God through mothers and propel all of you, all of us, to missional urgency and intentionality as we take a brief look at the beginning of the history of redemption and survey the role of mothers from there. So let's pray and get at it. Father in heaven, bless our time this morning. We pray that Jesus, Jesus, Jesus would be magnified. You had a role from the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Revelation for women and motherhood. And Lord, we want to honor you by honoring and thinking on your design. And so would you help us by your spirit to do this in a way that is pleasing to you? And may you raise up from Kahalui Baptist Church and beyond an army of mothers who are like, like Timothy's grandmother and mother, like... Eunice and Lois that teach their children the faith and change the world would you do this and get much glory in Jesus name amen so that's what we're going to do number one point number one motherhood mission critical not marginalized mission critical not marginalized How we treat our mothers in our culture can be somewhat of a moral compass over our life, can't it? Some people say if you want to know uh, what type of husband a man will make, uh, just look at how he treats his mother. And so that uh, could be a positive or negative side of how our culture can view motherhood as a type of moral compass. Or to demonstrate how wicked somebody is, you might say something like that person would betray his own mother right, to show how cruel and how wicked they are, that there would not be a, even a care for their own mothers. And so motherhood does have, a, in just a very brief, even cultural uh, survey, a massive impact in our lives, in our communities. And if you're here within the sound of my voice, I know one thing about you at least, even if I've never spoken to you before, there's at least one thing I know about you, and this is true of everybody, is that you all have... A mother. I know that about you. I'm a detective, a good detective. You have a mother. Now, within the sound of my voice, there are subcategories of that, right? Subcategories. Some of you have a mother who is here, and you're we're very blessed by her and you love her very much. And today is a sweet time where you remember uh, all that she has done in your life. And it's a sweet time for all of you. Some of you, that's, that's the reality. Some of you had a wonderful mother. And she is with the Lord now or has passed on. Some of you, the sadness that brings is accompanied by the joy of a loving memory. For some of you, the sadness that brings is accompanied by the hurt of a painful relationship all the way through to the end. So that's some of you. You have a mother. You had a mother. Some of you in here are a mother. Some of you in here are a mother, either at the beginning of your motherhood or uh, you've got all the badges and the merit badges. You're you're there. You've been there, done that. You're in grandmother or great-grandmother stage, what people tell me is the fun part. Some of you are there. Some of you have a mother, but you are not a mother, and you will never be a mother like men, okay? So men, that's us. We will never be mothers, all right? Uh, No matter what the culture says, you will never be a mother, all right? Some of you here do not have children, but you have the potential to be a mother. You are a woman of God, and we will see and talk to all of these different areas here, But I understand that there are particularly challenging scenarios and circumstances in which some of the listeners, that today is a a challenging day, a painful day. I have a word for you, okay? I have a word of encouragement for you, so just stick with it, even as we're talking about mothers and it brings pain. Stick with it. I have a word of encouragement for you. So, before we get more into it, we also have to note in the role of not idolizing mothers that as we look at the scriptures, motherhood and women are not the focus of the storyline of the Bible. Okay? They are not the focus. I'm going to talk a lot about mothers. Okay, And you might, if it's your first time hearing me, you might deduce, oh, Pastor Randy is just maybe reading too much into mothers. And so I'm going to stay up front. Mothers and womanhood are not the focus of the storyline of the Bible, but they are essential to it. They are essential to it, essential to it in a mission-critical fashion that without which the story of the Bible does not happen. So it's not about them, but they are essential to it. And so if you are a woman today or a mother today, just know that God has a very essential, important, treasured, beautiful design and role for you in the life of the church and in history at large. So they are essential to the storyline but they are not the focus of it. So what do we see first in this Genesis chapter 2 and the passages around it? How are women women particularly in regards to motherhood considered mission critical? How how is that the case, Pastor Randy? Before we get to our passage that Ezekiel read, we have to go just just a little bit back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Genesis chapter 1. So you remember uh, the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created... The heavens and the earth, the most famous line in probably all of the Bible, or one of the most famous openings. And so we have the creation account, the the account of creation. We're going to have in summary fashion God's creative works in chapter 1. And then chapter 2 turns over. And it's going to be kind of a honing in on the last chapter, of the last verses of chapter 1, which is verses 26, 27, 28, and following. And we get all the nitty-gritty details of how God created man and woman. So that's what we get, that, that honed-in, zoomed-in view after the summary, the overview. And what we see in Genesis 1:28 is a creation mandate. This is what it says. And God blessed them. After it says he created man and woman, male and female, in his image he created them. He goes on, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Did you see it? Did you catch it? How women and motherhood are mission critical? Here it is. The first component of the blessing is the call to parenthood. Be fruitful and what? Multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. That's the first component of the creation mandate. What was God's design for Adam and Eve? His design was that they were created in his image and likeness to rule and reign in his place for his glory over the whole world. That they would multiply with many, many image bearers and such that the whole planet would be full to the brim, overflowing with these image bearers of God. And the glory of God would cover the earth. That was the plan. And they couldn't do that without parenthood, without being fruitful and multiplying. So in the creation mandate, an essential component we see to how the Bible and how God views women is tied with this unique gift of motherhood in the design of creation. This unique gift of motherhood And the design of creation. And then we get to our passage that Ezekiel read in Genesis 2, 18. This is what it said. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Supposedly God's speaking. I always struggle whenever I'm doing uh, our, our children's story time with my children and, and family worship. Uh, how do I do God's voice? Is it deep or is it, is it kind of gentle or booming? You know. So, so this is one of those passages that's hard. But here we come and God says, it is not good. For the man, for Adam, to be alone. I'm going to make him a a helper fit for him. And then what happens is there's this parade of animals, right? That God brings all the creatures before Adam. And it says after he surveyed all the animals, it sums up that there was not a helper, again, suitable for him. There is nothing like Adam in all of creation. Which is to say there is a difference in watching a sunset with your dog and with your wife, isn't there? It's just something different. It's not the same. I love my dog. I love taking her to the beach, but it's just not the same to watch a movie with my 80-pound or 60-pound pit bull. It's not the same. And that's what it's tapping on here. There was not a helper suitable for him. And so verse 21 occurs. We have the very first surgery in the Bible. God takes a rib from Adam and puts him under anesthesia. He causes him to go to sleep, and then he forms a woman. A woman. Now, this has led all sorts of people to ask all sorts of questions like, do do men have one more rib than women? If I donate my kidney, will my child have one less kidney? No, no, just... We just think about these things, all right? You all have the same amount of ribs, okay? So there's all sorts of weird questions around this, all right? God took a rib from Adam, fashioned his wife, and presented it back before him. And God and Adam begins to sing. He breaks out in song. There's a very interesting thing that we see is that we don't get her name until chapter 3. All the way through chapter 3, we don't get her name. We don't even get her name uh, in chapter 3. We don't get her name until after the fall, which we'll talk about in a minute. But he just calls her woman, Isa, woman. It's the bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And we learn a lot of marriage there. But what we see here and how she was created is that it is totally in a different fashion and manner than the man. The man was formed, how? Out of the dust of the ground. The woman was formed from the rib. And so Martin Luther referred to his wife as his rib. And sometimes you'll see us refer to our wives as, this is my rib right here. Here she is. What do we learn is that the woman's identity is found in relation to, not apart from, The man. She was designed as a helper suitable for him. We could say she was made to spec. She was custom ordered just for you, not in competition to you, but a compliment to you in every way. And as a compliment, she is called his helper. His helper. This is a title the Holy Spirit is given. We could flesh out that whole study later on womanhood. That the Holy Spirit is our comforter, our helper, the one who comes alongside us in many ways for ministry and the walk that God has for us, empowers us, and and on and on we could go. And the woman here is called a helper, suitable for him, by no means marginalizing her role, rather elevating this woman's role over any other animal or creature on this planet that God gave man to help him do his creation mandate. This woman is right there from his very side, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, not marginalized, mission critical. The Great Commission, if we were to leap forward a couple millennia, the Great Commission, we'll get to in another point, is another aspect in which we see this critical component of women and motherhood in the life of the body. Now, Matthew's gospel is not quite as recognizable as John's in the beginning was the word, right? John kind of copyrighted that. But Matthew's gospel is just as tied to Genesis as John's. And you see a lot of themes coming up in Matthew's gospel as he picks up the genealogy account. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth, Genesis chapter 2. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of, and on and on it goes, tracing. And Matthew opens up. These are the generations of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, tying all of it back to Genesis. So no surprise that come to the Great Commission, it is a type of recreation mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Again, women will have an extremely, and do have an extremely important role in the fulfillment of the Great Commission that we'll talk about at the end. So what are some ways, practically, so, so that's, you're all like, yes, amen, mission, women are uh, mission critical, designed by God, a compliment to men. What are some ways that our culture uh, tangibly and practically marginalizes womanhood or mothers? What are some ways that we marginalize womanhood or mothers in defiance of God's design and dishonoring his glory and harming our own selves? Let me give you a few. Number one, domestic violence. Domestic violence, the terrible effect of the fall, goes totally against the grain of marriage and parenthood. Domestic violence in all of its forms, whether emotional, verbal, physical, all of them are evil. All of them treat women as less than God designed and are affront to his glory. I'll say this, God has wrath stored up for men who harm women made in his image. No matter how godly you think you are, if you are harsh, unkind, belittling, or abusive to your wife, God doesn't hear your prayers. 1 Peter three eighteen. God will not listen to your cries, though they're with fasting and tears. He doesn't hear you, not while you treat his daughters contemptibly. All forms of abuse are contrary to God's design, condemned by the scriptures, definitely condemned by this church, and massively marginalize the role of women. Rather than esteeming them, it belittles them and destroys them. Rather than flourishing them, it f- chokes the life out of them. So domestic violence, that's one way. It's a huge problem in Maui. Number two, another way we marginalize the role of women is downplaying their role as mothers as if it were less profitable as a career than doing something else. How do we do this? Let me ask you this. If your daughter comes and tells you she wants to grow up and become a homemaker, she just wants to have children and raise children, would you be happy? Or feel like she's wasting her life, her talents, her skills? This is one way our culture marginalizes this unique, wonderful, magical gift of motherhood. Motherhood is a beautiful thing. It is to be honored and esteemed by all who embrace it and encouraged and encouraged. Number three, another way we do this by marginalizing mothers is we criticize moms instead of coming alongside them to bear their burdens. We criticize them rather than come alongside them to bear their burdens. It's always, always easier to complain than to contribute in all spheres of life, this included. It's easier to complain than to contribute. They they don't have control of their kids. They they don't do this. Man, how could they not do this? this, In my day, we did things like this. Rather than seeking to know them Love them. Come alongside them. Let me wash dishes for you. Let me bear your burdens for you. By standing at a distance and criticizing them, we marginalize their essential role in the life of our society, of our homes, and of the body of Christ. And I would encourage you, rather than criticize, come alongside. Find ways to love them and shoulder this burden with them. Number four. Oh, sorry, I have one more for that one. How do we marginalize uh, moms by criticizing them? That's how we do it in the church and society. How do we do it in the home? Husbands, when we are overbearing and unthankful to our wives, we marginalize God's design for motherhood. Every time I'll confess, okay, confession of Pastor Randy. This is going to be a shock to some of you that I sin, but I do, okay, and, and I do Frequently, so every time my wife's not in here, if she were, she, she's she's helping uh, with nursery. If she were, she'd be saying amen. All right, every time we have a child and I take over the motherhood duties, Mister Mom, I suddenly start to do all the things I get irritated at her for doing, like forgetting to turn off the stove or forgetting t- things in the laundry and leaving them overnight, and, and getting all emotional and frantic. I'm just like, I just want to cry. Just can't do it. Suddenly, all the things that I get onto her or get irritated at her for, I do whenever I'm the one taking care of the children. It's because I'm unthankful, and it is sinful. It's because I marginalize her role rather than esteem it, and it is sinful. And I ought to seek her forgiveness, and I have, and I do. Uh, now I, I am growing in respect every day, and. Uh, This is another way husbands can marginalize in the home the role of a mom. Number four, another way we marginalize mothers, by dishonoring your mother in word and deed, as Dr. Albert Muller said, all year long, and then attempting to make up for it on Mother's Day with a nice set of flowers, a fancy card, and some chocolates. We try to assuage our guilt in those times. Number five, There's a host of other ways we could go on and on, and we could go in detail and all of these things, but the last one I'll mention, how does our culture at large marginalize mothers, instead of seeing them as mission critical, is in the dark, evil work of abortion. In the act of abortion, motherhood, instead of bearing and caring for a child, turns against her child and murders them in the womb for any number of reasons. It's not justifiable under any circumstance. We can't call it women's health care and act like it's something that's good. It's evil. There are far better alternatives to abortion. Suffice it to say, this is not the championing of motherhood or children, it's the exact opposite. See, the Bible, storyline of the Bible, has women who are courageous, who are faithful, who are strong, brave, and at the same time mingled with nurturing, loving, care, and kindness. You look at the mothers in Exodus chapters 1 through 3, mothers who stood in the face of Pharaoh, defied his orders to throw their children into the river, and said, no, at the cost of our lives, we will not obey Pharaoh and finding all sorts of ways to protect their children. This is biblical motherhood. Strong, courageous, sacrificial, according to God's design. So number one, motherhood's mission critical. You are designed by God, a helper, a complement to, to Adam in every way. To help fulfill the creation mandate, to multiply, be fruitful, exercise dominion. All things impossible without women. And mothers. Number two. Number two. Motherhood wrecked by sin. Redeemed by Jesus. Wrecked by sin. Redeemed by Jesus. We don't move far into the storyline of the Bible to see that this relationship and design are wrecked By sin. Genesis chapter 1, design. Genesis chapter 2, design unfolded. Genesis chapter 3, total disaster of the design, falling apart. In the curse, there are two aspects related to the woman's role that are impacted. Her relationship to the man and her bearing of children. In relation to the man... Instead of coming alongside as a helper suitable for him, now she aims, or because of sin, to control him. Not going to go there, just that's all I'm (laughs) going to say. Her relationship to childbearing, instead of being accompanied by joy of bringing an image bearer to God, is literally a near-death experience. Pain. And childbearing seems like it just doesn't suffice to account for what women really go through. Yet amidst all of it, the cursing that is to happen, God speaks mercy into the situation. When immediate death is what the law demands, what justice demands, the woman instead receives this beautiful promise in Genesis 3.15. Check this out. God says, he's speaking to the serpent still at this point, but he starts to talk about the woman. I'm going to put enmity, hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's he saying? One day, one day the male offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Another interesting point we see here is that the Bible begins with this promise of a male crushing offspring of a woman, and it ends, Revelation 12, we'll see this, it ends with the depiction of a great dragon trying to devour a woman and her male child. Hmm. That male child, that offspring, is the focus of the whole Bible. Who is that? Jesus. Jesus. And this is the promise at the beginning, Genesis 3, that a a male offspring, he is going to be born, the offspring of a woman that will crush the head of the serpent. And in this, we see the mercy of motherhood on this side of the fall. The mercy of motherhood. Instead of death, instead of death, she gets to bear life, to bear life in her womb such, in such a way that the very disobedience that she fell into, the very thing that she fell into through her design of bearing children would be the very thing that redeems her role and everything else in all of creation when that child is born. This is a train of thought that Paul has in 1 Timothy 2, 13 to 15. It's a confusing passage for many, but with this backdrop of of God's design in womanhood, this is what Paul is picking up on. He says this For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, here's a confusing part she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What does that mean? It's almost as if Paul is, he's talking about the authority, the role of women in the church, in the local church. That's what he's talking about. It's almost as if he's communicating that the authority of women in the church, not being able to serve as a pastor, is balanced out by the influence of women in the home through childbearing. So Paul is urging them, you need not fight for a voice, for a role of authority in the life of the body. Why? Because your role is exercised in the long game of influence in the home. As you raise up little children, men and women, that will turn into men and women, you shape their worldviews, their heart, their mind through instruction. What's he saying? Women, you have a crucial role because you have authority in the long game. That's incredible. That's incredible. That's incredible. So we see that motherhood on this side of the fall is a mercy. It's a mercy. Eve picked up on that mercy when we see her reaction in chapter 4, verse 1. Let's check that out real fast. In chapter 4, verse 1, or actually before that in chapter 3, verse 20, we finally get her name, don't we? We finally get her name instead of just being called woman, woman, or wife. Verse 20, after the fall, this is part of the mercy of motherhood. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Post-fall, we get her name because motherhood later is a great mercy and a great gift to be pursued and encouraged if you desire it. Chapter 4, verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, or a man-child. See, Eve recognizes the joy, the mercy that this gift is on this side of the fall. She deserved death. She got grace. She got a promise. And now the Lord, in his mercy, comes alongside and helps her. Have a child. So motherhood wrecked by sin and we would say redeemed by Jesus. How is that the case? How is motherhood wrecked by sin and redeemed by Jesus? Here's a few ways. Number one, the joys of motherhood are wrecked through sibling rivalry. It's one way. Through sibling rivalry rivalry. In Genesis chapter 4, that's exactly what we see happen, isn't it? Genesis chapter 4, Cain rises up and kills who? Abel, the first murder in the Bible. The first murder in the Bible. Sibling rivalry. This continues throughout the storyline of the Bible. Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, Esau, Or the most famous one in Genesis would be what? The selling of Joseph by his brothers into slavery. Sibling rivalry often vexes parents greatly. How is it redeemed by Jesus? Because all of that rivalry points to the day that another man would be born who is betrayed by his brothers, by his own people, by those closest to him. Judas would rise up, kiss the Savior on the cheek, betraying him with a kiss. Kicking off the events of the crucifixion. And suddenly, Joseph's last words that we hear Genesis fifty twenty say, Become true in Jesus what you meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about the salvation of many. How does that address sibling rivalry? Beloved, you don't know what God is doing a million ways behind the scenes. If that's your children and they're fighting and squabbling and they're vexing your soul, you never know when God will drop the blinders and reveal his plan. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. Through Jesus. Through Jesus. The joys of motherhood, sibling rivalry. Number two, pain and barrenness. The pain of barrenness rears its head in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God promises, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to multiply you. You're going to father nations. But there's one problem with that promise, isn't there? They're advanced in years, and Sarah has no children. The pain of barrenness rears its head. It's going to do this over and over in the storyline of the Bible, Through the work of Christ and the cross, there are some women who, while they experience the pain of barrenness, through faith in Christ, that pain is redeemed. How? How? Even if you never have a physical child, how can that pain be redeemed? Number one, you could adopt children and so portray the adopting grace of God who adopts those who are his enemies, into his family and restores them, gives them a new identity in Christ, Amen. a glorious picture of adoption. They're not, they're not these are my, my children, these are my adopted children. No, these are all my children. These are my children, truly, legally, in every sense of the word, by adoption. That's one way. second way is through having spiritual children, through the accomplishment of the Great Commission. As you, as a woman, exercise your mandate, your recreation mandates, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers through Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the gospel, you will have spiritual children, countless, potentially, spiritual children who in the last day around the throne of God, they will rise up and call you blessed will up and call you blessed. So the pain of barrenness can wreck motherhood, but it is redeemed through Jesus. The last way I'll mention today, how has sin distorted motherhood? And how is it redeemed? How do I say this? Because this is a painful one. Let's just say there are mothers who aren't tender, who are not courageous who are not kind or caring, but instead they're cold, cruel, distant, absent, or abusive to their children. The Bible is not without evil mothers in the storyline. Maaka, 1 Kings 15, she's the queen mother of Abijah. Establishes idolatry and wickedness in the land. Jezebel, famous Jezebel in 1 Kings 16. Athaliah in 2 Kings 11. She murdered everybody in her own family except for one so she could reign. The Bible's with not, not without its evil mothers. And this can wreak havoc on a child's life. And some of you may struggle with how to honor somebody who has been so unkind to you in many ways has betrayed you and you deal with the effects of this the rest of your life. What what hope is there for sin's effect on this? There's a few ways. I want to give you a few. The first, don't discount the power of God to change your parents and save them. Don't give up hope. That God, in His timing and in His mercy, at His will, can in a second, even after years of strained relationship and hardship, can change your parents through the gospel and save them and restore everything to make it better than you could have ever imagined. It may be that through your prayers, your consistent prayers, that God saves them. So don't give up. Hope on the power of God to change him. Number two, what hope does the Bible have? It commands us to love our enemies. So, if that's you and motherhood is a painful reality, hear the words of the scriptures. Love your enemies, pray for them who persecute you. At the very least, what this means is you have to reject bitterness and fight for a stance of redemptive love towards them. You have to. Now, this doesn't mean that there are no guards against patterns of abuse. That doesn't mean that. It just means you have to have a stance of peace towards them and actively seek reconciliation at any signs of change. Number three, seek ways, creatively brainstorm ways, To honor them in obedience to the fifth commandment, to honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land. Remember this, that were it not for God's grace, it could be you. Were it not for God's grace, this could be you. Seek ways to honor them in obedience to the fifth command. That doesn't mean telling a lie about something that's not true. It means look for even the minutest evidence of God's grace towards them. Number four, sometimes the most honoring thing you can do with great wisdom, prayer, having sought counsel, is to confront them in their sin, call them to repentance from their sin, and urge them where to find forgiveness. Jesus. Sometimes the way we honor abusive parents is by labeling their sin and calling it what it is and calling them to repent and find hope and forgiveness in Jesus with love, truth, gravity, patience, and wisdom to do so. So the hard realities of motherhood Redeemed in every way through Jesus. And point number three, temporary sacrifice, eternal rewards. Temporary sacrifice, eternal rewards. This last one is geared towards those who are moms now. You're in the joys of motherhood, the hardships of motherhood. You're maybe tired and here, or, or maybe you're not here because they're watching children. This is for you. I want to urge you to press on in your role as women and mothers, to dig deep to see what God is doing in you, to see, take the, the long game approach, not the day-by-day battles. You have a pivotal role in making disciples in the home and in the church. See, these children, Psalm 127 describes them, will be like arrows in the hand of a warrior. And one day, if you raise them well and you have this unique ability and the influence to do so, if you raise them well, we will launch them out like explosive tipped arrows into the darkness to make an impact in this world for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel in all places wherever they go. This is an incredible gift. So what you have when you look at your little child or your big child is an explosive-tipped arrow that you're fashioning, ready to roll for the purposes of God. So when you're in those mundane tasks, washing dishes, doing laundry, changing the 10th diaper that day while you've got to nothing else done, and you feel lonely and painful, Remember that your work is mission critical to the work of the church and advancement of the gospel. It truly is a temporary sacrifice for an eternal impact. Where else, where else can you put in the time to impact eternity with certainty? With certainty. So many people want to change the world and do something that matters, that makes a difference. Having a child you can guarantee will impact eternity. Will impact eternity. Treasure that work. Treasure it. And then even as you are a mother doing a great work, I want you to remember this. It is temporary. It is not your ultimate identity. So be on guard against the idol of motherhood. Your ultimate identity is found in Jesus is found in Christ. You will not be a mother forever. You will be a daughter of God for all eternity. You will be a child of God forever and ever. Matthew twenty-two thirty. you will be like the angels in heaven who are neither married nor given in marriage. It's not that there's no marriage in heaven. It's that there's one marriage in heaven. You are married to Christ. And we are all brothers and sisters in the Lord. So what is the best thing, the best thing you can do for this ultimate identity, not as mom, but as daughter of God? What is the best thing that I want to urge you in this morning? Make your soul happy in God. Be as happy in God as you possibly can for your own soul and the souls of your children who watch you. Fight to be in the word, to be in prayer, and lead your children to do the same. It is possible to have quiet time even while the decibel around you is high. It is possible. Fight for that time. And, husbands, help your wife with it. Help her, give her that time. So they will fight for it, and you help them with it. Make sure that your wife, the mother of your children, has time in the word for her soul. Mothers, thank you for all you do. Thank you truly isn't enough. We don't want to marginalize you. We see you here as mission critical. May God be praised for his his wisdom in bringing about salvation through the offspring of a woman, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven. I pray that you would comfort, strengthen, establish the women, the mothers, for the work you have for them. May you encourage their souls as they look to you and trust you in whatever circumstances they may find themselves. Whether as a mother, a soon to be mother, or they struggle with pain of childlessness or broken relationships with their moms, may we trust you that you are at work in a million ways, unseen to our eyes. And may your design energize us for the work of the ministry in all facets. May husbands grow in this body in increasing degrees to lead, labor for, and sacrifice their wives for women so that we honor your design and exemplify the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.